0: You're listening to Calvary Spokane's teaching series on Genesis called The Patriarchs. Good evening. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 21 as we're going to look at the last portion of this chapter beginning in verse 22. And if you don't mind, would you stand with me and as we read it together. Genesis chapter 1 beginning in verse 22. It reads as follows. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of the forces, said to Abraham, "God is with you in everything you do. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Show me and the country where you are living as an show to me and the country where you are living as an alien the same kindness I have shown you." And Abraham said, "I swear it." Then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. But Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this. You did not tell me, and I heard about it only today. And so Abraham brought sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a treaty. And Abraham set set apart seven ewe lambs from the flock. And Abimelech asked him, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs you have set apart by themselves? And he replied, accept these seven lambs from my hands as a witness that I dug this well, so that the place was called Beersheba, because the two men swore an oath there. And after the treaty had been made at Beersheba, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of the forces, returned to the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called upon the name of the Lord, the eternal God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines a long time. Let's begin with prayer. Father, I ask as we continue through this study that your holy spirit would just give us clear understanding for oftentimes passages have so much obscure references to them. It's hard for us to see how they relate to the lives we're living today. And so God, I pray that you would guide us in that journey, that you would open up our understanding that You would speak to us of things that are central to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We pray for this grace in Jesus' name, amen. Oftentimes, when you are reading a text in English like this, you realize that somewhere in the translation, a lot of stuff got left out because there are references that may seem very cryptic to us, but in the culture in which they were originally written, they made complete sense. And in fact, one of the interesting notations, at least to me, was the fact that Babimelech didn't understand the whole custom of the seven ewes and what seven represented, the making of oaths and covenants, which suggests to us very strongly that he was not a Semite or from that part of the world. He wasn't familiar with the culture of the Canaanite. And in fact, that's actually a fairly important point in at least the historicity of this particular passage. But let me begin by saying that chapter 21 ends by reintroducing uh, to us Abimelech, whom Abraham had encountered earlier. He was the king of this place called Gerar, which is only about 20 miles from modern day Beersheba today in southern Israel. But Abraham's previous encounter was somewhat problematic. Um, for, like his previous encounter with Pharaoh back in chapter 12, Abraham had told Abimelech that Sarah, his wife, was his sister and had not informed him that he was married to his sister. Anyway, from their previous encounter, we learned that Sarah actually was his half-sister. As he said in chapter 20, in his explanation to Abimelech, he said, She really is my sister, the daughter of my my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he, he is my brother. That's an interesting quest, at least sounding to our ears, that if your wife were to say to you, everywhere I go, if you want to really show your love to me, tell people you're not married to me. I mean, it's kind of a, you'd have to wonder about the nature of that request. But of course, we understand that Abraham was afraid that he would be killed for the sake of his wife. And it's not something that was unheard of in those cultures in those times. There was a certain risk of being a wanderer in the same way today when you're an alien in a country where you don't have the rights or the place of citizenship, there's a certain vulnerability you have to people who are around you. And that's certainly the concern that Abraham had. But because both Pharaoh and Bimelech had taken Sarah, not knowing that she was Abraham's wife, the Lord was gracious and merciful to them, and he didn't bring judgment upon them. But at the same time, they felt obliged for reasons that aren't given to us in the text to give him a great deal of money and property in settlement for their mistake as a way of appeasing God that he might not judge them because of what they had done. And and this is really one of the sad parts of the story, because in both of these cases, these non-Hebrews display greater integrity than does Abraham, the prophet of God. Here he is, this man of God, and he behaves in a way with lowered integrity. Now, I would like to say that this is the only case we find in scripture or in the world or the church where this has ever happened, but we understand it's not. We understand that Abraham, like all the rest of us, has feet of clay, and oftentimes we don't behave at the best that we could in certain circumstances. Our responses and reactions to all sorts of things can be far below the character of God and the will of God for us in Christ. But I think that following that encounter, Abraham and company essentially continued to live in that region, in that, in that southern part of Canaan, known as the Negev. And the Negev is really, a, it's an interesting Hebrew word. It means dry, and as you can see from the slide, for obvious reasons. There's not a lot of surface water. The only time there's surface water is when it rains, and because the soil is, uh, has such low percolation levels, it's so hard and dense, that water, that rain that falls on it tends to pool and turn into raging rivers. In Israel, even today, there are about 20 people every year on average that are drowned in the Dead Sea area because they'll have these flash floods. It can rain 20 miles away uh, near Jerusalem and it will pool down into what are called wadis or these, these uh, seasonal riverbeds. And literally, I've, I've been seen literally entire bridges and roads completely wiped out by one of these floods. It's, a, it's an amazing how powerful water can be if it wants to move something in front of it. But it's also basically a term that came to mean south. So the word south, if you want to say south in Hebrew, it's Negev. Because the Negev, the, all the north, east, south, west locations are all geographical in the in the Hebrew language. They're not uh, points of the, the, the uh, map as we place them. But basically, rather than being compass designations, they simply are oriented around various uh, geographical locations. So that west becomes the uh, the Mediterranean is the is basically the west, and so forth. So we find this place, the Negev, had this double meaning. It meant a very dry place. It also meant a place that was to the south. And it ultimately formed the southernmost border of the land of Canaan. In fact, the town of Beersheba, which is in this area, was the southern boundary. Many times, if you read in the Old Testament, it says, everywhere from Dan, which is the furthest north, to Beersheba, those were the boundaries of the land of Canaan. But two notable things happened while Abraham is here in Beersheba. Uh, first of all, Isaac was born in Beersheba. And that certainly becomes a, a critical moment. As And it appears that it remained to be Abraham's home for a very long time after this, although we're not given the exact length of time. But secondly... Abraham's servants, as we read, had dug a well there, and later it became, as we read in the text, Beersheba, or the well of the oath, or the well of the seven, because the words seven and oath are very similar in Hebrew and are often used in an interchangeable way. And the idea is that within the, the biblical culture that seven expressed the perfection of God. In other words, God created the heavens and the earth in six days, but he rested the seventh. So seventh became the point of perfection and completion. And so when you entered into an agreement, the idea that you would have sevens involved in it was a way of sealing that as something that's going to be overseen or legislated by God himself, that you're inviting essentially God to be a witness over that transaction so that if either party violates that that pact, then God is the one who is going to hold you responsible for, for breaking that covenant. So that Although Abraham and Abimelech were able to resolve their differences with Sarah um, amicably, apparently there continued to be tensions. And we see that as Abraham's wealth and power had increased, Abimelech could not help but begin to feel a bit threatened because he didn't understand the internal motivation of Abraham. In other words, he's a man who has done everything in his life. He's used every moment and every ability and every power to secure a position of leadership and rulership over his kingdom. In fact, the name Abimelech literally means, my father is the king. And it's more of a title than it is a family name. And so he had done everything he could do to be in that position. He basically climbed to the top and now wanted to hold his position there. And he couldn't imagine that someone like Abraham, who is favored by God, whom God listens to, and who is moving ahead materially in every other way, wouldn't also desire to overtake him. And sometimes these are the tensions that we face in our world. I have to admit, sometimes Christians are guilty as being as ambitious and as ruthless and competitive as their, you know, co-workers or other people they're involved with. But for us, God wants us, I believe, to come to a place in our life where we don't feel the need to try to self-promote. We don't have the need to try to attain to some kind of recognition or applause. In fact, Jesus said that one of the flaws, or excuse me, John says in his gospel, one of the flaws of the Pharisees is they loved the praise of men more than they did the approval of God. And so one of the challenges that we have as Christians oftentimes is to ask ourselves, what is it that I'm striving for? Whose applause do I want? Do I want the applause of man and of earth? Or am I really craving the applause of God? And I can tell you that I've overcome this challenge. I want them both. (laughs) I wish I could say that it didn't matter if people didn't approve, but it always feels good when people say to you, wow, that was really good. And at that point, the greatest temptations befall us, because at that moment, we have that temptation, as we've talked about many times, of wanting to reach out and touch the glory. (laughs) And there's nothing that's more toxic, as Uzzah found when he reached out and touched the glory of the Ark of the Covenant, that touching the glory will kill you. It'll destroy you faster than anything you you can think of. And so essentially, it was hard for somebody like Abimelech, who's looking at it from a purely humanistic, naturalistic point of view, who can see nothing else but what he can attain in this life, to believe that Abraham wouldn't be seeking to undermine him and to overtake him. And so in a realistic way, he thought it was really prudent that somehow he settled the tensions that were taking place between them, the tensions that were manifested over this well of water. Now, again, it's hard for us who live in a well-watered world to understand how important water is. But even today, it's of central importance in the Middle East and many other parts of the world today because basically water equals life. It's more valuable than gold, it's more valuable than oil. We often think of the Middle East being about, you know, oil wells and the wealth that comes with that. But more important to that than all of that is the issue of water because you can only live for a very short period of time without water. And that's why when we talk about living waters in a biblical phrase of living waters, living waters are waters that basically come out of the ground of them by themselves. In other words, they're fresh artesian wells that are bubbling out from under the ground, and those are the most precious waters because they are the healthiest, the freshest waters. Even today, when you look in the the Middle East, You find that most people still use wells and cisterns. And what a cistern is, as you can see in the slide, is basically a a large tunnel or channel that's dug underneath, and the water is directed into it from the rainfall, and it collects it there, and then it sits in there. And the idea is that they have a very small hole. There won't be a lot of other stuff like animals falling in and dying there so that the idea that it can keep it a little bit fresher, but in reality, it's not very fresh. And yet, even during the, say, the 48 war, where Israel Israel was involved with, surrounded by all the Muslim countries, many of the Jews survived by finding the ancient cisterns that are all over the city of Jerusalem and drawing water from them. And so it's viewed as a key. In fact, in Jerusalem today, it's a requirement to have water containment tanks on the roofs of your house for this very reason, because there was always been historically a shortage of water in the land. I would say that's really up until recently. Uh, but you see, when you, when you talk about the rainy season, it runs from basically um, sometime about November at the, at the earliest, and it's done by April. And the rest of the year, it's very, very hot, but it's not a lot of water. In fact, in the Negev where this is being uh, played out, their average rainfall in Beersheba is two inches per year. Two inches per year. Now think about Beersheba, it's a town of a quarter million people. It's the second largest city in, in Israel today and they only get two inches of rainfall, how do they handle that? Well, that was one of the things that Yasser Arafat used to say about the Jews, that they were gonna push them out of Jerusalem and away from the Jordan. And he says, let them drink salt water, let them drink out of the Mediterranean. And so they took him at his word and they developed a desalinization uh, technique that involves uh, solar radio- solar uh, power instead of using usually the uh, diesel or gas generated power. And now Israel produces 80% of their water. Their potable water is produced from desalination plants. They used to have to depend exclusively on the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee, in particular, because as most of you understand, the Dead Sea is not potable. You, it's uh, 35% minerals. You know, you can't even drown if you wanted to in that water. But the whole point is that we're talking about how water plays such an important part. So the issue of who controls a well is something that wars have been fought over. And the Middle East has been racked by many conflicts dealing with the issue of just who controls the water. So when Turkey builds a a dam that uh, controls the flow from the Euphrates, everybody downstream, which includes uh, Syria, it includes Iraq, it includes uh, even the Iranians, everybody is affected because if they decide to turn off the spigots, everybody suffers, and the same thing is true with Egypt. They have uh, to be concerned about what happens in Africa and Ethiopia and other places because the Nile River flowing out of those countries as well. And so, these are things that, even today, nations will go to war over. Now, it's perfectly understandable, given the past conflicts regarding Sarah and Abraham's growing power, and then the natural competitiveness between the shepherds and, and the idea of water and grazing land and pasturage, that the potential for violence here was not only very likely, but it was probably inevitable at some point in time. And I think that's why Abimelech came to Abraham. He said, look, (laughs) we need to work something out. And I think that the evidence of his attitude, in fact, is by the introduction of a new character in our story, this fellow who's called Fikol. And his name literally means strong man. And he's called the Tsar or the commander of the armies of Abimelech. So in other words, what he brings with him is his general, just to make the point that this is something probably Abraham is want, going to want to agree to. Now, I understand his feelings because I wouldn't trust Abraham either after he had previously lied to him and put him and his kingdom in jeopardy, serious jeopardy. Which is why when he asks Abraham to promise not to do him and his descendants harm, he says, Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Show to me and the country where you are living as an alien the same kindness that I have shown you." Personally, it's kind of embarrassing to me that he had to even say that. I just... but that's one of the things I love about Scripture. It never whitewashes the character of the people who are part of the story. It tells us... it describes them exactly as they are. Abraham, quite literally, could be a powerful enemy or a powerful ally. And so it says that they settled the suits, the two men swore an oath there. And this gave birth to what became the largest and the most important city in the south, which as I mentioned before, even today is the city of Beersheba. archeological excavations have, have revealed that for a long time, there was a very large and uh, prestigious city because it's right on the main trade route that goes from Egypt all the way up into Mesopotamia. But there's another aspect of the story that, for a long time, has troubled many serious Bible students. And some of you may have already picked that up as we read through the text. I I assume that a lot of you didn't even notice it, didn't even stick out to you. But it's the fact that Abimelech and Phicol are identified as Philistines. Now, why is that a problem? Well, Abraham lived somewhere around 2000 BC, 2000 years before the time of Christ. We don't really encounter the Philistines for another 800 years at least when they come and settle in the land of Canaan. And this becomes evident because we talk when God talks about Israel going from Egypt through the wilderness and then into the land of Canaan and taking possession of it. There's no mention of Philistines. We have Amorites and Canaanites and Jebusites and Perizzites and a whole list of other kinds of ites that you can get. They're all listed there, but there's no Philistines. In fact, in the book of Judges, for the first time, we find about the Philistines in the day of Samson, which is somewhere around 13 or 1200 BC, some seven or 800 years later. And so we're going, okay, we've got a chronological gap here. We've got talking about people living in near Beersheba in 2000 B.C., and yet we have no other record of them being there until we get to 1200 B.C. How do we bridge that gap? Well, for many years, historians considered Genesis and its reference to the Philistines as what we call an anachronism. And an anachronism is basically the description of an event belonging to a different period of time than the one in which it's recorded. And this is how the the scholars reasoned it. They said, basically, uh, obviously Moses didn't write the books of Moses, but it was written later on by somebody else who didn't know that the people who lived there weren't Philistines and therefore they mistakenly put the name of Philistines and therefore we know that Moses didn't write the Old Testament, didn't write Genesis, and it had to be written at a much later date and therefore we kind of can pick and choose the parts of it that we want to uh, follow or believe in or recognize because it's not really biblically or historically reliable. Um, And this really was the narrative for a very long time. But understandably, what they were essentially saying is the Bible has historical errors and therefore you, when you see things that don't make sense to you, it's easy to just kind of push them aside. I had one pastor friend who was, at the time, as I was a young pastor in my 30s, and he was uh, really old, about my age. And he was telling me that when he went through seminary, he said, it destroyed my confidence in the Old Testament because all I heard was this kind of stuff. It's anachronistic, it's anachronistic. you can't rely upon it, it's not historically valid. And he said, it came to the point where when I first started pastoring, I, I stopped teaching the Old Testament completely because I didn't have any confidence that it could be relied upon. I even hear people, even today, I mean, as crazy as it sounds, people saying we've got to unhitch the gospel from the Old Testament. Which is kind of crazy because it's kind of like saying I want to unhitch my car from my rear axle. It's, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to go anyplace, the gospel makes no sense without the Old Testament. And so, but why would you do that? I don't wonder. I love what Albert Moeller said, who was in conversation with the person who made that comment. He said, essentially, he took that position because he was embarrassed by things that the Old Testament said that he couldn't explain. And my answer to that is, you need to study harder because there are explanations and there are answers. Just because you don't know them doesn't mean that they're not there. Well, this is where it kind of becomes interesting because today... Because of the growth of archeology, span you have to realize that archeology span as a science is only about 175, maybe at most 200 years old. It's not like it's been around forever and ever. And the first guys who started digging in the ground basically looked at the Bible and they said, the Bible says there's something here. And so we're gonna start digging there and see if we can find things. And over and over again, they began to discover that where the Bible said something was, they actually found what they were looking for. But that has grown in, in, in many ways and become really sophisticated, very advanced uh, science. And what we understand is that the people who lived in the Aegean Sea, we call them the Greeks today, uh, they were, and particularly people who came from the Isle of Crete, which was known in biblical times as Kaphtor, actually were quite visible and active in this region of the world. The ancient Minoan Empire, which was centered on the Isle of Crete, which in its day was one of the most advanced cultures in the ancient world. In fact, at Santorini, which uh, basically was, is a caldera, uh, and probably signaled the end of the Minoan Empire, or the beginning of the end, when it exploded and destroyed much of their sea industry. But they found in the excavations at, the, at Santorini, of the city that was, or the city was completely buried under 60 feet of ash. They found homes that had hot and cold running water, indoor plumbing, and things that were not seen in the, until the modern world again. They were a very advanced culture. In fact, the Minoan literature we call linear A right now is still a language that nobody understands. It's like when, when the Champollion found the Rosetta Stone and was able for the first time to decipher what uh, hieroglyphics were, the Egyptian hieroglyphics. Well, we have a same problem when we talk about Linear A, the, the writing of the ancient Minoans, because nobody knows how to interpret it. There's no alphabet, there's no comparative language. If you don't know, the Rosetta Stone was basically a stone that was written in hieroglyphics, it was written in, in Greek, and it was written Dometic, which is a kind of a cursive form of Egyptian language. And so because they knew Greek, they could see what the Greek text said, compare it to the hieroglyphics, and begin to interpret them. And then suddenly, that whole history of the uh, Egyptian empire was unveiled to historians who could begin to translate it but we don't have that with the language of the Minoans, so they're largely unknown to us. But what has been discovered is that in Egypt, there have been a number of Minoan frescoes, pottery, and jewelry that have been identified. In fact, as you look at these examples that are on the screen, all of these are frescoes that are on walls of buildings that they found in Egypt, and these are not Egyptians. These are people from the Aegean Sea. These are basically Greeks, Living out their their Greek culture, but they're also residents of Egypt at the time. And so basically in the 12th century BC, the Minoan Empire collapsed... Uh, But before that, we know that they were active traders all over the Mediterranean world and they interacted with the Egyptians. In fact, we often think that our culture is based upon the Greeks, that basically Greek culture has really been, was the the bed sea, the seabed of modern Western world, but actually the Greeks... We're still pounding rocks to make fire when the Egyptians were building pyramids. So that the reality is that the Egyptians, I mean, the Greeks learned their culture from the Egyptians rather than the other way, that we are more the, the descendants of Egyptian culture that was passed on from generation to generation, even up to our present time. Kind of changes, you know, the way you may feel, but, you know, I've always felt a little bit pharaonic anyway, so it, it could be, it could be. But again, we know that the the Minoans settled in this area during the time of of Abraham. Now, part of the problem, too, is the word Philistine itself. What actually does that mean? Now, we use it today to refer to somebody who is uncouth, crude, and not very sophisticated. But the truth of the matter is, (laughs) in, in the biblical times, it was the Philistines who were the sophisticates. Remember we read in, in Samuel how that the Israelites had to come to the Philistines to have them sharpen their tools because they didn't have uh, the, the ability to forge iron and to make iron weapons. And it's interesting because what we know is that when the Minoan Empire collapsed somewhere around 1200 B.C., that people from the Aegean Sea, the Greek Isles and all over, began to roam wildly throughout the Middle East, or excuse me, around the Middle East, all the way up and down the, the Eastern Mediterranean coast. And as they did, they brought their culture with them. And if you want to kind of get a visual picture of what these groups of Greeks were like, think Vikings. (laughs) We, we might think of them being, you know, these kind of, uh, cavalier individuals who are well-spoken and well-mannered. They were violent, brutal warriors. The Greeks' isles were based upon warfare. I mean, it was part of their culture and they carried that with them. But one of the first things they did was they defeated the Hittite Empire, which is in modern-day Turkey today, and they gathered from the Hittites the technological advantage of having iron weapons. It doesn't take a lot to understand the advantage of having an iron weapon. If you're going up against a guy who has a sword made of bronze or copper and you hit his sword, his sword is going to break very quickly and suddenly he's going to be disarmed. And they literally flowed across the Middle East, conquering one place after another. In fact, reaching all the way into Egypt. But it's also interesting because when they came to Egypt, it was Ramses III, who was the Pharaoh at the time, who had to confront them. And the war between him and these tribes went on for eight years. And it was a vicious battle because they came from land and they also came from sea. And there were six different tribes of these sea peoples as they were referred to. And the Philistines were only one of the six tribes. There were six different tribes that are listed uh, at the Medinet Temple in Luxor, and he lists the different tribes that were there. But the Philistines were the most prominent, and therefore they were the ones, their name kind of stuck in history. Well, Ramses boasts about how he defeated them, and what he did after he defeated them was he moved them up or let them settle all along the, the coast of the Levant, all the way the cities of uh, uh, all the way up and down the Mediterranean coast. But we know of five prominent cities, but there are many other sides, even like in modern day Jaffa or Tel Aviv, there's a whole excavation of a of a Philistine city there up a door to the north, because these were again seafaring people, but they coached mingled with the cultures of the time and became uh, suddenly, all of a sudden, they became the primary oppos- op- opponents of the Israelites, particularly during the days of Samuel and of Saul and of David. David ultimately conquered them, brought them under submission, and many times you see, you'll see references to David's uh, personal bodyguard, the Pelethites and the Cherethites. What we oftentimes fail to realize is those were Philistines. Those were Philistine troops that were basically mercenaries from these cities that he had conquered, and he brought them in. Why? Because they were well trained and they were well equipped. In fact, it's interesting when you read through the history, you get these little tips about how, little hints about how sophisticated and well trained the Philistine soldiers were. But and I don't just mean because of Goliath <laughs> You know when we see, see, Read the story of David and Goliath and we find That David comes and says to Goliath Why are you guys put up with this uncircumcised Philistine and so forth and so on And Saul puts His armor on David and David Probably could turn around and not Even move with his armor on But the thing he says is I don't know how to use These things that's the essence of what he says I don't know how to use a walk with armor and use This kind of weaponry this is something I'm not trained in and so he went to what he knew. But we find that Goliath became really the exemplar. I mean, the word Goliath actually means to be a great military champion. And so he was the most sophisticated, but their entire army was armed like that. The Israelites were coming out. Probably Saul, maybe his sons and his immediate bodyguard were the only ones who had swords of that kind, and who had armor. They were going up against a much more sophisticated army. And we see what happens, because when Saul is finally killed on the mountains of Gilboa, it talks about how the Philistines really kind of chased the Israelites right across the Jordan River. And then it says, the next day, as they were going through the spoils, In other words, one of the things that often causes particularly ancient armies to lose battles or lose the initiative is once the enemy began to run, they stopped chasing him and they started plundering everything and stealing all their stuff. And they lose the advantage. A trained army would continue to pursue the enemy until they were finished and then go back and collect the spoils. It's called military discipline. And that's something that oftentimes the Israelites themselves did not have. So it's an interesting picture we have here, but suddenly we find at about 1200 BC, or the 12th century BC, there is a movement of these Philistines into the land, and suddenly they are the primary enemy. From the time they come on the scene, we no longer hear about the Canaanites or any of these other tribes of people. It's the Philistines who are the ones. And it's also interesting because the Philistines are the only people inhabiting the land who didn't practice circumcision. We're talking about all these these tribes, the the Jebusites and the Canaanites, they all practice circumcision. But the Philistines are the only ones they call these uncircumcised Philistines. They were people from a different place, just like Abimelech didn't understand the idea of seven animals sealing an oath because he was not part of that culture. He was part, probably, of the Minoan culture. But... This leaves me with really kind of the last question and maybe the only part of the story that you're even interested in. What is the spiritual significance of this particular story? And and it's, it's easy to miss. But you see, three times in the life of Abraham, we read he did something. Three times it says he called on the name of the Lord. In chapter 12, when he first comes into the land of Canaan and God speaks to him and says, I'm going to give you all of this land. Everywhere you walk, it's yours. And that's probably why he kept walking so much. But basically, it says he built an altar at Bethel and he worshiped the Lord and he began to call on the name of the Lord. And then later on when he goes to Egypt and he has this close call, but he comes back being a man who is greatly enriched back to Bethel. What it does is says he offered again on the same altar that he had previously built and he began to call on the Lord. And there's a wonderful significance in all this because here we find for the third time and the only the third time in Abraham's life, it makes a statement that he called upon the name of the Lord after he had sealed this covenant with Abimelech. Why is that significant? Well, it doesn't mean that he never called an the Lord or never prayed prior to this. That's not the point. The language is is a little bit, again, kind of cryptic to us, but what it implies is that he he basically reiterated the covenant relationship that he had with God. It re- represented really a point in time where he said, God, you have been faithful to me, you have kept your promises, and I'm re- recommitting myself as I acknowledge your faithfulness to me. Now, but this time it was a little bit different because he doesn't build an altar, but what does he do? He plants a tamarisk tree. Now, tamarisk trees are nice, in the Negev because they're about the only tree that will grow there. They're a a very hardy tree, they're very long lasting and they can get pretty large and they can provide you with a certain degree of of shade in the sun. In fact, there is a slide somewhere in here that has, I got there we go. So you can get an idea, here's a a pretty large tree and you realize that there's a little bit of shade there and when you're out in the Negev at certain times of day, that's really, really valuable just to get out of the sun. But what is that? why is that significant? It's because at that point, he says that God is not going to be limited in what he's going to do for me, because he adds this phrase, the Lord, Yahweh, the eternal God, El Olam, the eternal God, the eternal one. You see, in a purely physical sense, Abraham was putting down his roots, and I say that because the text goes on to tell us Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. You don't plant a tree if you're not planning on being there. In fact, one of the things we find is that the idea of planting a tree in the Middle East is a symbol of your plan to be in that place for a very long time. Modern, you know, technology, and well, whatever it is they do with plants, with the science of plant stuff, I, I know that term well. Uh, but basically, you know, today you can, you can get an, uh, an olive tree to begin to bear fruit within four or five years. But in ancient times, it took a lifetime. You plant the tree, and you would never eat the fruit of that tree. Your kids would, because it would take 40 years before it reached a place of total maturity. And the point is that when, when you go and plant a vineyard or plant an olive yard or any other kind of fruit-bearing plant, you did it not for yourself, but you did it for your posterity. It's a kind of thinking that doesn't really exist in our culture very much anymore. We don't think of, of doing anything for the future because most of the time, you know, if a building is 30 years old, we tear it down and replace it with something new. And we, we don't have that idea of the continuity of place and continuity of tradition, continuity of culture. But for them, this was the idea that God has made a promise to us and I'm going to plant a tree as an expression of my confidence that God is going to do this because my children and my children's children for generations to come will be able to not only come to this well, but they'll be able to come to this tree. And they'll say, this is the tree that our father Abraham planted in this place. And it was a way of making that kind of faith statement that he was believing that God was not limited. He's the eternal one. He's not limited by the uh, uh, material dynamics of time, space, and everything else that we fi- feel that often governs the universe and controls our destiny. But so he, he, this became significant, not only that, because it marks, in a sense, the end of Abraham's journey The very next time we see it, we don't know when it happened. It said he was in in Beersheba for a very long time. The last reference we have of Abraham is when he's back up further north at Hebron in the middle of the land of Israel. And there it is that he dies and is buried. That's where he buries his wife, Sarah. And that's where we have the... the, uh, um, still the the mosque, the, uh, the Muslim mosques built over the, actually the, the caves that hold the bodies or the remains of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Leah and so forth. But it, at the same time, what we find is he is coming really in a way to the end of his journey. He's come from the furthest north, from the land of Dan, all the way to the southern boundary to Beersheba. But it also marks the beginning of God's fulfillment of his promise, because it's there that Isaac is born. That up until the birth of Isaac, God's promises are so much blue sky. And he's struggling to believe that God's promise is going to happen. But when he comes to Beersheba, that's where Isaac is born. That's where Isaac continues to live through the rest of his lifetime. But it becomes a marker in their souls that this is a place where the promises of God begin to see the beginning of their fulfillment in our life. And in the same way that that tree was going to go down in its roots and was going to go up in the sky, God also was going to cause his progeny to spread out and to fill the entirety of the earth. Trees are are symbolic even in the Middle East today as being uh, of eternal character, representing God's promises. And it's quite common to find around ancient religious sites large trees that are looked on as being symbols or emblems of God's presence and His divine giving. But also something else about trees is that most of them you find in the Middle East, you can cut down and they'll come back. You can cut them down and you come back. In fact, when Job makes that statement, he says, A tree, if it is cut down, it will sprout again, and its new root shoots will not fail. Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, Instead of the thorn bush will grow the pine tree. Instead of the briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown for an everlasting sign, which will not be destroyed. In other words, Abraham is simply saying, as this tree survives, so also will your people survive in ad fit in them, that God's promises will never fail, will always be fulfilled, and we can trust in the promises of God in terms of our own lives. You know, we have such a huge advantage over Abraham or Isaac or Jacob and the rest of them because we have the Bible. <laughs> They didn't have that. And I think it's something we always need to remind ourselves is they had to rely upon what they believed that God was saying to them. Now, granted, you go around telling people, well, God spoke to me and they might question you and, and rightly so, especially if it makes no sense or it doesn't bear out in reality. But at the same time, those of us who have walked with God know that we're probably where we are right now in our lives because we felt like God was speaking that to us. I'll never forget when God called us to Spokane, you know, and I, you know, I'm such a, such a prophet and perceptive guy, but I remember, I remember getting a call and, you know, the the good folks here, they say, we would love to have you come and uh, consider being our pastor. And I just said very clearly that because I knew for certain that's not going to happen. That's not God's will. Thank you for the invitation, but I'm not coming. Goodbye. I don't know what was wrong with him, because a month later they called back again, and I said, I don't know what you didn't understand about no first time, but it's still no now. I can't do it. And then they called a third time and got my wife. And um, she's always been a little bit more sensitive to those kind of things. And she said to me, she says, you know, you really ought to actually kind of consider, at least you should kind of go there and, and see what this Spokane place is like, and, and, you know, see if it's somewhere you want to be, if God's calling us there. And I... You know, and I thought to myself, oh, that makes absolutely sense. You know how silly women can be. And so I went and uh, <clears throat> talked to one of the guys on the staff of the church where I was at the time, and I said, well, they keep on asking me, and, and, and I, I just know it's not God's will. And he says, how do you know it's not God's will? And I said, well, I just bought a house two months ago. I'll lose my shirt if I have to sell my house. And he said, what does that have to do with anything? And I thought to myself, I hate you right now. <laughs> 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 You know, because let's be honest, none of us likes being pushed into faith like that, you know, trusting God. But finally, I said, OK, OK, I'll come up and see what you have going. And I remember they we flew into Spokane Airport and they came and picked us up and they took us out and were treating us and whining and dining us. And they all had such happy faces and grins and excitement, you know, and telling us all the wonderful things about being in this community and so forth. And um, I remember as we went to bed that night and I'm laying in bed with my wife and I said to her, I feel terrible because tomorrow I'm going to have to tell these people, we're not supposed to be here. I mean, thank you for the invitation. I'm really honored. I'm flattered that you'd like me to come and all that sort of stuff. But it's just not, it's not what God has for us. And she goes, yeah, I know. I, it's going to be hard. And I don't know exactly what happened. <laughs> but I remember about 12 o'clock the next day, we were looking at each other and said, we're supposed to move here. And suddenly it was like, I knew, that I knew, that I knew. And I couldn't tell you why we knew, but we both looked at each other, and the witness of two is true, and we said, God wants us to move to Spokane. And so, you know, that happened. And then so we end up, and, you know, and if you don't like that story, it's your fault, not mine. (laughs) But... (laughs) But that's, that's the reality that many times God challenges us to live beyond what we can know and what we can see and understand. And that's why even though it's easy for me to be critical of Abraham and others because of the fumbling way in which they went about following God, the fact of the matter is that they, sure, they stumbled, but they always got up. And they just started again and they just kept on going and they kept on going because so I found that there's something that's far greater than intellect and it's called persistence. A lot of people are brilliant, but they give up because they're lazy or they don't like the difficulty and the pain. People who do stuff and accomplish things just simply get a vision and they just keep on hammering it and hammering it. And that's, you know, and all of a sudden you're here 35 years later, I'm still doing the same thing. And you realize that that's what God does when he begins to impel you to trust him to go forward. It's not easy. None of us should, even for a moment, think that that's the easiest path. It's, I love the, my favorite Lewis book is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You know, I don't care how old you are, that is just a beautiful, wonderful book to read. And I love the part when they're at the house of the beavers, you know, and, and they're talking about Aslan, you know, and Aslan this, and Aslan that. And they, they ask, who is Aslan? Aslan's a Persian word, it means lion. And they go, who is Aslan? Well, he's a lion. Well, is he safe? No, but he's good. <laughs> I thought to myself, following the Lord is not safe, but it's good. It's good. There are things that happen to us because we follow the Lord that are not safe. They're not fun. They're not what we would choose for ourselves ever And yet, when we enter into them by faith, God somehow gets you through to the other side. And when you do, you look up and you say, I want to plant a tamarisk tree right here because God has proven himself faithful. And I believe that my children's 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 children will sit under the shade of this tree and they'll drink from the water of that well because God always keeps his promises. Let's pray. Father God, I pray in the name of your son Jesus that you'd help us to understand the significance of even obscure passages in the Old Testament like the one that we just read tonight. That Lord, that the problem isn't in the text, the problem is often in our understanding and even our willingness to to study it enough to be able to extract from it such wonderful insights and truths that help us as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death sometimes help us lord to trust you to be faithful to you unto the end even knowing that there will be times when we will trip and we will stumble and we'll fall short and like abraham we will tell lies and we'll fudge and fidget around and at the end lord all that you're concerned with is we're simply saying god despite my inadequacies i'm going to continue to follow you And you look at that faith that does that and says, you are my friend. And when you, when we're like Abraham, Lord, let us plant trees in the wilderness, believing that one day they will spread out and bloom and be part of the covenant extending to our children for generations after us. We trust you for this, Lord, and believe you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.